justice delayed is justice denied this is a phrase embedded within the very being of every judicial system in the world or at least it should be yet the essence of this phrase is sometimes hard to live by sometimes comes before us a case so shocking yet so convoluted that not years but decades pass by without an ounce of justice such is the case of a 21 year old nun from kerala this is the story of a woman whose brutal death in 1992 remained unsolved till december of 2020 a whole 28 years this is the story of sister abhya everyone welcome to desi crime a show where we dive deep into some of the craziest cases from around south asia i'm your host ashwarya and i'm aryan and the case that i have for you today aryan is right out of a soap opera it has sex scandal religion drama death corruption and every other possible crazy true crime trope you can think of ashwarya a dead nun in and of itself is mysterious you layer that with 28 years for justice and it just makes no sense like who kills a nun a nun is the last person you think would be at the at the subject of a murder i agree it goes like little babies old people and 21 year old nuns but the reason for this killing is one that i will get to but to get to it i'm going to have to take you back to the year 1992 inside the hostel of the St Pius X convent in Kottayam Kerala in this convent on the night of March 27th were living multiple catholic nuns one of whom was supposed to be 21 year old abhya who was born bina thomas a beautiful and bright young woman sister abhya was known for her hard work and the dedication to her congregation she unflinchingly displayed To be a nun at 21 isn't a small feat now and it wasn't back in the early 1990s either. In fact, it was her hard work and dedication that prompted Abhya to wake up in the wee hours of the morning of March 27th at around 4 a.m. to study for her upcoming exams as a college student. But when the other nuns woke up hours later on the 27th, they would find in their hostel kitchen an eerily somber scene. but no sister abhya in the kitchen the fridge door was wide open with a bottle of water lying on the floor with the water spilt all over next to that bottle of water was a single flip flop slipper the owner of which everyone knew was sister abhya but there seemed to be no sign of her under the kitchen door was caught a white veil and the kitchen door had been locked from the outside but perhaps the most jarring detail of all was the small hand axe that also lay on the floor along with everything else when the nuns woke up to this scene in the kitchen they noticed instantly that the one person missing from among them was sister abhya 
In fact, one of the nuns even recalls Abhya waking up at around 4am and walking towards the kitchen. Looking at the scene, everyone felt a pit in their stomach. It was obvious something very bad had happened to one of their own. And so the convent wasted no time in calling the police to the hostel. When the police arrived, a search for Sister Abhya began within the premises of the convent hostel because it seemed pretty clear that the start of whatever happened to her was within the hostel walls. As the police searched every room, washroom and space, and as the police walked along the exterior of the hostel building hoping for clues, they stood dead in their tracks because they had found one, the other slipper. This other slipper of the pair, belonging to Sister Abhya, was found outside the hostel, lying next to the convent's water well. Now the police knew where they needed to check next. As they took small, cautious steps towards the well, little did they know that they were about to find what would change the state of Kerala. Inside the well was Sister Abhya's lifeless dead body, floating up at the top of the water. Now, Aryan, I need you to listen to Sister Abhya's post-mortem results and give me your thoughts on them, alright? I want you to tell me, does it sound like an aggressive crime or not? In fact, does it even sound like a crime or not? Could it possibly be a suicide? The post-mortem report said the following. Sister Abhya had significant lacerations on her shoulders and her hips along with two lacerations to her head. There were also nail marks on either side of her neck. She had no sign of sexual assault. Considering all of this, with the scene that was found inside the kitchen, what would you say? How did Sister Abhya die? I mean, Ishwara, we've covered over 100 cases at Desi Crime and mm -hmm. the scene that you've just described and the way the post-mortem goes on to detail. Um, if if I, I'm not a betting man, but if I was at gunpoint and forced to guess, I would say this is obviously a, a murder because there there are so many signs of struggle, right? There, there are not, there not going to be signs of struggle if you commit suicide, but there are going to be signs of struggle if and somebody attacked you. And not nail marks at the very yeah, least. Yeah, nail right. marks. Nail marks, yeah, like, are you scratching yourself? But that doesn't add up. That, Aran, is the exact reaction of any sane, logical person when they come across these facts. But something really weird began to happen in this case from the moment that the post-mortem was even conducted. Right from the outset, the authorities and the convent seemed hell-bent on claiming that this was a suicide. For example, the police never let Dr. Radha Krishnan, the doctor who conducted the autopsy, even visit the crime scene. And you remember the nail marks found on either side of Sister Abhya's neck? That was never revealed in the autopsy. That is something that the photographer taking photos of her body noticed and then pointed out to other people. Despite all of these discoveries, though, the autopsy labelled the cause of death to be drowning. Added to all of this was the reaction of Sister Abhya's own convent, which just didn't seem to make any sense to anyone. The convent, whenever it did speak to the police or the public, only seemed to suggest that Sister Abhya died either by suicide due to her deteriorating mental condition and severe depression, or by accidentally slipping and falling into the well. In fact, shortly after her death, the convent went on to heavily remodel the whole building, trying to, quote, renovate it, thereby completely changing the crime scene forever. And the police seemed to tag right along with this theory, despite having seen all of the evidence. 
For example, the police never sent Sister Avya's clothes for forensic examination and the inquest report that the police prepared never once mentioned the various injuries to her body that could not be explained by accidentally falling into a well. And mind you, like uh, the inquest reports and the autopsies mention literally everything in that report whether or not it is related to the yeah. murder if there is they, they would mention tattoos and they would mention you know Absolutely. any sort of piercings, surgical wound everything. piercings yeah. anything worth noteworthy because the mm-hmm. forensic the, the person performing the autopsy is not necessarily the forensic examiner or the investigator right mm-hmm. like they are there to collect facts not to make uh, judgments out of it so Absolutely. their job is just to report the facts so it is weird that they're not reporting so all the facts and details. Missed. Yeah. But Aran, that's not all. Not only did the police not send multiple pieces of evidence for examination, but they also ended up destroying multiple pieces of evidence shortly after the murder. The medical report also had forged signatures on it, completely invalidating it. And this wasn't even the only document that turned out to be forged in this case. There were many more, including Sister Abhya's chemical examination reports. After all of this rather shady behaviour on part of the Kerala police and the congregation to which Abhya belonged, her death was finally ruled a suicide by drowning just a few short weeks after her death. But make no mistake, you and I aren't the only ones who found this ruling and everyone's reaction to it completely absurd. In a show of solidarity to Sister Abhya, 67 nuns belonging to her congregation spoke up. They weren't going to take the blatant disregard for facts and denial of justice lying down. These protests, organised and led by a 23-year-old human rights activist, Jamon P, were the reason there was finally movement in this case. You see, Jamon and the nuns who supported this cause knew one thing for sure. The service of God was a beautiful thing, but that the clergy in Kerala was needlessly powerful and corrupt and knew the truth behind Abhya's murder, but was hell-bent on hiding it from the world. They knew that the story of this bright and devoted young nun dropping a slipper, leaving an axe, leaving the fridge door open and spilling a water bottle all to scratch her neck and jump into a well to kill herself was a lie. These nuns, along with Jamon, formed the Abhaya Action Council in the same month as Abhaya's death and petitioned the Chief Minister of Kerala, urging him to look at the facts again and investigate this case for what it truly was, a murder. It was these protests that finally led to the CBI stepping in and putting some of its best officers on Abhaya's case. Yet, 13 different batches of CBI officers would come into office and those 13 CBI officers would leave office over 15 years, unable to solve this case. Was it a murder or was it a suicide? That was the question they could not answer. Or maybe they could answer it. It was just an answer they didn't want the world to know. When the CBI first began its investigation in the year 1993, the officer put on the case was Deputy Superintendent Varghese P. Thomas. He filed the first report for the case and even came forward to say that he believed the evidence pointed to the death being a murder. His belief that this was clearly a murder is heavily recorded in case diaries that he kept during his investigation. But Aran, once his stance on the case became known to the department and the congregation, Deputy Varghese was rather quickly transferred 
to the of CBI branch of a was. different state, of course, like always. And shortly after that, he ended up taking voluntary retirement, despite having almost a decade more of service left. And if you think this is bad, before he retired, Deputy Vaghis held a press conference where he told the whole country why he was retiring when he had no actual reason to. The orders he was receiving from the higher-ups to label this case a suicide went against his conscience. That is why he was giving up his life's work. But this sketchy behaviour from within the CBI didn't end with the first officer. After Superintendent Varghese was moved from his post, the new appointed officer took it upon himself to conduct a dummy test with a life-sized doll of Sister Abhya's body in 1995. This dummy of her was dropped into the well she was found in from different angles to try and draw reliable conclusions, but ultimately, the department returned empty-handed. No conclusions. This further agitated the Action Council that had been fighting for Abhya's justice from the very beginning, and their protest prompted the CBI to go out to the public and ask for help. They promised monetary compensation of Rs 3 lakhs or 16 lakhs in today's money for anyone who had information in the case, but yet again returned empty-handed. No conclusions. By 1996, three years after the night of the death, the CBI was asked to submit a report on their investigation and a report was submitted. The conclusion of the report? The CBI was unable to determine whether the death was a suicide or a murder due to a lack of medical evidence. The courts, however, saw what the rest of the public were seeing and refused to accept this report. The courts wanted more answers. The pressure from the Kerala High Court and the protesting members of the congregation was mounting on the CBI. The CBI came back with a second report in 1999, officially calling the case a homicide for the very first time since the death, but claiming that there was not enough evidence to determine the identity of the killer. The court again refused to accept this report. Then again, in the year 2005, more than a decade after Sister Abhya's death, the CBI produced a report this time with the same verdict as the first one. No indication of foul play. Surprise, surprise, the court again rejected the report. The courts, in a shocking move, came out with a very strong statement against the CBI, accusing them of having vested interests towards a party and compromising the investigation by defeating the ends of justice. Anyway, after going back and forth with the courts, many, many angry protests by the Action Council and a PIL filed with the High Court of Kerala, there was one revelation made by the CBI that shook the country. They had suspects. They've had suspects all of these years. And these suspects came to the CBI via the story of a thief. Over the course of the many years that the CBI had engaged in this investigation, not one, not two, but three suspects had come to light because of the tale of a man named Raju. Prosecution witness number three, Adakka Raju. The night of the murder, Raju had theft on his mind. His plan was simple, to sneak up onto the terrace of the hostel where the nuns lived, the same hostel where Sister Rabia was sleeping on the night of March 27th, and steal some of the many copper rods that are usually found inside the lightning arrester on top of the building. He would then, the next day, be able to sell the copper rods in the local market for some modest money. And he did exactly that. He got up on the terrace, and as he searched for the copper rods and collected them to try and bring them down the building in the wee hours of the night, 
he saw something really really weird going down at the entrance of the hostel building he saw a man arrive i just want to point out here to the listeners that this is the testimony of a thief that happened to be at the convent the night a nun died this is his testimony and aran honestly the cbi and the courts saw that as well it was a weird detail that everyone kind of took time to wrap their heads around i did too but the more you learn about raju the more you fall in love with him and the more you want to give him the copper rods from your building's terrace so just keep this thing i don't know ashwar uh, i don't know like i you're calling him a witness i'd say this is probably a suspect i'm telling you aran there is nothing but love in my heart for raju and that's all for a reason and you're going to see sure 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 now whether raju could be trusted or not he says that what he saw that night under the building was weird to him a man arrive and if a man arriving at a building in the depths of the night isn't weird to you that's because you're not a nun living in a women's only convent hostel as part of a faith that would heavily frown upon the presence of a man in such a private space especially at the sour and raju knew this reality which is why this image of this man stuck in his mind that wasn't the only reason he remembered this site though raju actually knew who the man walking in was it was a priest father thomas couture trying to get this image out of his mind raju knew firstly that he himself was in the middle of a crime and couldn't stand there thinking about father thomas exactly. and secondly he knew he could never tell anyone about what he saw because of what he was doing up there so raju climbed down the building with the copper rods and sold them to a local scrap dealer named shamir eventually upon reading the news of sister abhya's death and seeing the police botch the investigation and call it a suicide raju knew he had information that could probably be of use in probably one of the most heartwarming moments of honesty in this entire case raju goes to the police within the first week of the murder confesses of his theft and narrates to them what and who he saw inside the hostel that night in turn in what is one of the most brutal and heartbreaking moments of dishonesty in this case the police accuses raju of being abhya's murderer arrests not only him but also shamir the scrap dealer that raju sold the rods to and shamir's brother for the next 60 days the police kept raju shamir and shamir's brother in custody where all three of them were brutally tortured Raju was tortured to get him to confess of committing the murder and Shamir and his brother were tortured so that they would rat Raju out but none of these three men budged they were offered money and a house and funds to educate their children but the men did not budge they were innocent and they stood by their story and they were eventually released all right i mean i i think i was quick to judge a thief um Raju is a sweetie man i i like Raju I I I kind of I kind of like him. So did the courts. <laughs> Now you know what all of this means Zoran. This means that from week 1 of the murder the police had a lead in the form of Father Thomas. A lead they did absolutely nothing about. A lead they did everything to try and hide from the public. But the question you must be asking yourself is who was Father Thomas and what was he doing inside the convent hostel at 4 a.m.? Who was he there to meet? That is perhaps the most important question of this case. 
in the answer to the question why was father thomas there at all lies the motive behind the murder and in the answer to the question who was he there to meet lie other possible suspects and the police always knew the answer to these two questions because father thomas wouldn't stop talking about the answer to these questions God. in passing conversations with friends and acquaintances father thomas had managed to let a huge secret slip the secret of his affair to sister sefi a nun living in the same convent hostel as sister abhaya me and her are like husband and wife father thomas had told a prominent activist in a conversation shortly before the murder upon further investigation it was found that the cook who worked at the hostel had come forward long ago to tell the police that father thomas was a regular at the hostel but not only was he a regular there was another priest who was a regular father joseph the two men would often frequent the hostel to meet sister sefi and every time they did they would get the cook to make the three of them lavish meals which they enjoyed together without any of the other convent nuns in fact the two men had visited just the day before abhay was found dead so not to make salacious allegations but mm-hmm. this was a love triangle i'm guessing right A love triangle is one possible theory. Another different theory suggests that it was actually just Sister Sefi and Father Thomas that were having an affair. Father Joseph was just sort of an accomplice to their affair, helping them hide it, a common friend to the both of them. That's another theory. But to lots of people, yes, this does seem like a love triangle. Another weird detail is that the convent had dogs on the premises, all of whom should have barked had the killers of Abhaya been strangers. These dogs were known to ferociously guard the hostel, but that night the dogs remained silent because they knew the murderers. This is similar to when uh, there is a burglary in the house, but no mm-hmm. sign of a break-in. It is uh, mm-hmm. it is an inevitable assumption by the investigators that the person. It was Who, someone new. It was someone they knew because they let him mm-hmm. in, uh, and so mm-hmm. similarly in this case, the dogs didn't bark. Uh, is almost yep. uh, justifying that it was an insider who was responsible. Insider, yep. And the dogs weren't hurt. None of that. Now, if the dogs knew the murderers, Sister Abhya also knew her murderers because her murderers belonged to her own congregation. And make no mistake, the CBI and the police didn't think that one of them committed the murder. They thought all three of them together committed the murder, which is why in 2007, on the demand of the Kerala High Court, the CBI was made to conduct a narco test on all three of them. In the results of this narco test, which were eventually presented to the court, the three don't look terribly guilty at all. They look dazed and they look out of it, but not guilty. Only it is later revealed that the footage of the narco test presented to the court had more than 30 different points at which it had been edited and doctored. The original tapes were later uncovered by a news channel and in those tapes the three can be heard loud and clear admitting to killing Abhaya that night. And added to all of this was perhaps the most jaw-dropping and scandalous piece of evidence that remained hidden for so long. record of a hymenoplasty or more simply a surgical reconstruction of the hymen over the course of its investigation the cbi had come across documents revealing that sister sefi one of the prime suspects in this case had undergone a hymen reconstruction the day after sister abhya's death from the church hospital to try and hide the fact that she was sexually active 
Now the reason the court ever found out about the surgery was because in 2008 when the pressure on the CBI mounted it conducted a quote virginity test on sister Safi which revealed the hymen reconstruction surgery. When the CBI initially conducted this test the result was that sister Safi was not a virgin because the surgery conducted was apparent. However, these results of the virginity test were then tampered with using a whitener to indicate that she was in fact a quote virgin. This again was an inside job of someone trying to protect sister Safi. Ashwarya, <clears throat> I mean the virginity test in this case actually helped mm-hmm. the investigators. So that's great. Hmm. But the this as an investigative tool sounds so invasive. that i wouldn't be surprised Incredibly. if if it is misused and if it is absolutely uh, it's yeah it's such an invasive way to investigate it's anybody and it's also really really important here to point out that virginity tests are also incredibly sexist a ton of women are born with very little hymen tissue others break their hymen by just existing while others break it because of physical exertion like playing a sport and so there is no technical biological definition to the word virgin there's only a social definition to think that sister safi's virginity could somehow be tested or even reversed is absolute nonsense and even though she is the perpetrator here to subject any woman to a virginity test is awful in my opinion but i guess the point here is that the change in sister safi's virginity test reports clearly indicating the report had been tampered with combined with the evidence of her hymen reconstruction surgery just the day after the murder really put her smack dab in the center of this crime She seemed guilty from all accounts and she father Thomas and father Joseph seemed to have the perfect motive. That night at 4 a.m. sister Rabia woke up to study. While studying she felt thirsty and decided to get herself some chilled water from the kitchen fridge. But the moment she walked into the kitchen what she stumbled upon changed her whole life. Sister Safi in a compromising position with Father Thomas and Father Joseph. In the spur of the moment, panicked and frenzied, Sister Safi picked up the small hand axe in the kitchen meant for chopping firewood and struck Sister Rabia after a struggle. The three then, presuming her to be dead, carried her body to the well on the hostel compound and dropped her inside, leaving a trail of clues that they never bothered to clean up, such as her two slippers in completely different locations, her white veil stuck under the kitchen door, the murder weapon just lying on the floor and the water bottle spilt with water on the floor. What I don't fully understand is the water bottle. If Sister Abhya walked in on the three in a compromising position, How did she even find the time or mental space to go get a bottle of water before she got into a struggle? Was the bottle of water placed there on purpose for the same reason that none of the other stuff on the kitchen floor was hidden or removed? I don't know and I can't even find an answer online. Ishwara, I think uh, what might have happened and this is my circumstantial reconstruction is as mm-hmm. she entered the kitchen right and she switched on the light or or her footsteps could be heard by the by the father and sister Sefi. Yeah. When they when they could hear somebody come, I'm sure they stopped and tried to hide in there wherever they could. And I can imagine sure. a groggy, sleepy, uh you know, insomniac uh no a sister <laughs> who's studying coming into the kitchen, not looking around really, heading straight for the fridge, taking out the mm-hmm. bottle of water. 
and then when she begins drinking she looks around and then she sees the perpetrators there and so it leads yeah. to the bottle being spilled and what not very similar to you know imagine you're doing something wrong and you hear footsteps mm-hmm. you freeze right and you you look for the nearest crevice yeah. to hide in so there is that yeah. period i think that that's sort of what could have happened and that might explain the water bottle I completely agree that that's a possible theory and another possibility that I was able to come up with is that maybe that's just one of those details that gets reported weirdly after the fact so maybe sister abhya was in a room and sister safi with the two priests was in a room right across from the kitchen with like a glass door separating them or an yeah, open door yeah, separating them be. you know and both parties took some time to figure out that the other was actually there so maybe it's just that detail that gets weirdly reported Anyway, all of that aside, I think what is unbelievable about this saga is that the major details of it were known to the authorities right from the start. Yet they did nothing about it. Finally, in 2007 and 2008, after succumbing to pressure from the courts, all of these details I've told you came to light for the very first time. And by November of 2008, Sister Safi, Father Thomas, and Father Joseph were all arrested for the murder. The trial began shortly after which concluded an absolutely unbelievable 28 years after the murder in December of 2020. This in an instant became the longest investigation ever in the history of the state of Kerala. The court found Father Thomas and Sister Safi guilty of the murder of Sister Abhya for destruction of evidence and for defamation and awarded them life in prison but acquitted Father Joseph for lack of evidence. In 2023 the court heard sister Safi's petition for the virginity test and in a historic move for the country declared any and all forms of virginity tests to be unconstitutional wow. violations of the right to privacy and violations to the right of life Today both the murderers live the rest of their days in two separate prisons in Tiruvannathpuram where even murder couldn't help them unite The case ended with the judge speaking highly of one single witness in this case who did not change his story till the very end and displayed unflinching honesty Adakka Raju the key to solving this seemingly unsolvable crime But this story doesn't end just with justice for sister Abhya There were many more whose lives were destroyed in its process. The first CBI deputy to work on the case, Deputy Varghese, who was left with no choice but to either corrupt himself or quit, or the first sub-inspector to work on this case, Inspector Augustine, who prepared the FIR for the murder, who killed himself in 2008 by slitting his wrists and taking poison, claiming torture by the CBI during the course of this case, or scrap dealer Shamir and his brother, tortured in prison for the fault of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or the community of Christians in Kerala whose faith was left tarnished by the acts of cold-blooded murderers. There is a lot more justice that needs to be had in this case. Unfortunately, the story seldom ends with justice for the victim. It usually only begins. Thank you.